So hopefully you've been enjoying this summer series called Whosoever Believes. And we've been taking the letters of the New Testament from Romans to Revelation and just really giving the highlight of each of these important letters, letters that were written personally, one-on-one from Paul to Timothy and Titus and so forth. And then some were where the Apostle Paul writes to churches like the Ephesians, the Galatians, etc. And today we are in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is a meaty uh, letter. It's, it's deep. But as you read and approach the scriptures yourself, to in, as you read and, and, and learn how to interpret them, it's, I, I say this word all the time, but it's context. You have to read the Bible understanding things in their context. You can take, I mean, no, you can take one verse out of context and make it say whatever you want it to say. They justified slavery back in the day because Paul mentions slaves. And so it was like, yeah, the Bible must be okay with this. No, not if you read context, right? That's so, so important. This is an ancient book written by ancient authors to an ancient people. And as people in you know, modern times, we have to know how do we get into the mind of the author? How do we get into the mind and hearts of the people they were writing to? What was the situations that were going on? That will help each one of us read our Bibles better and know how to apply it to our lives. So when I think of context, I think of asking questions. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? When did they write it? And why did they write it? Important questions on this thing called context. Let me give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, I'm going to read this verse to you. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. On face, first read, you're like, uh, do I willfully still sin? Anybody with me? So you read that and you go, did I outsend the cross or something? If you don't know the context of this verse, then people, I've seen people beat people over the head with verses like these and take them out of context. The context of Hebrews in this particular warning verse, it was written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. And they, the, the book of Hebrews, this is so important, was written prior to 70 AD. And 70 AD is the year that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And when they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. And the temple was the permanent place in Jerusalem where the Jews did their sacrifices of, of incense and animals and all kinds of offerings. It, it was the identity of the Jewish people. And that was completely destroyed by the Romans. And so this, was, this book of Hebrews was written prior to that event. That's important. Because what was happening is these Jewish Christians were being persecuted by the Romans as well as their own people, religiously. And so since Jesus hadn't returned, like they thought he was going to return in their lifetime, they started going back to the temple worship. They started looking to those sacrifices for forgiveness and and, and all of that when Jesus came to fulfill everything that was going on in the temple, everything that was going on in the law and Moses and all of that. Jesus was the culmination of that. 
And so this warning is not about lying or lust or whatever. Obviously, we don't want to do those things. But this warning is about taking your eyes off of Jesus and going back to the shadow, to the the sacrifices, when he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Very important. This is a big book. A lot of stuff going on here. It's, it's important to have some understanding of the Old Testament as you read Hebrews. But Duane and I have broke the book of Hebrews, calling it the heart of Hebrews, into three simple statements. As you read Hebrews on your own, prayerfully these three statements will help. Um, the key verse in Hebrews 13, in Hebrews is 13.8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can hang your hat on that. Jesus Christ has always been the eternal Son of God. He's continuing to be the Son of God, and He will, for all eternity, always be the eternal Son of God. He doesn't change. He never has changed. So, let's dig into this this book and apply it to our lives. The first point I want to make is this. You follow whom you listen to. What voices are we listening to? Whatever voice we're listening to, we follow. We follow those voices. And how many know there's a lot of competing voices in this world for your allegiance to help you, to, to, to give you some sort of purpose and identity? When Jesus wants us to listen to him for our identity, for our purpose for our understanding of what life is about. He is the truth. He is reality. We need to learn to listen to him. There's an old statement that, uh, you know how when Jesus went around and he picked his disciples and he said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's what rabbis would do. They would go and they would find uh, men that would want to follow them and walk with them. They called it following the dust of your rabbi. That as your rabbi is, is, is walking, you walk with him. You listen to him. You emulate him. Well, Jesus is our rabbi. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He's our teacher. But he's our rabbi. He's the one that we're following. We need to listen to him. Twice in the gospels, we see the father shouting from heaven at Jesus's baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then at Mount of Transfiguration, the same thing. So you follow whom you listen to. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God used to speak through the prophets. He says now he speaks to us through his son doesn't mean the prophets aren't important or the Old Testament, but our rabbi Jesus needs to be how we interpret all the things that go on in Scripture. I've come up with a couple mile markers that lead us to Jesus being superior to everything that we find in the book of Hebrews. 
And it's funny that in 30 minutes, we're going to give you the book of Hebrews. We could spend a year in this book. But what we're trying to do is help each person be able to read the Bible better for them, themselves. But when you go on a, on a trip, if you go on a road trip and you're, you're driving on the highway, there are mile markers along the highway, right, that tell you where you're at on your journey and what is your, whatever your final destination is. Well, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus is our final destination. It's never Jesus plus anything. He is the culmination of all of history. He's the king of the universe. He created all things. He sustains all things. And all these mile markers that happen along the way culminate in Jesus. The first mile marker that the author of Hebrews says is this, is that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, we in the West, we don't talk a lot about angels, but you don't have to read much of the Old Testament to realize angels were all over doing, you know, God's work. And angels are the messen- were messengers of God. But they're also in the New Testament. You know, the announcement of Jesus's birth, to, you know, to Mary and to Joseph and at uh, the tomb when Jesus was resurrected. We just don't think a whole lot about them. And the angels are important, but the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians kind of elevated them almost to angel worship. And so the author of Hebrews felt like they had to to listen. He's superior to the angels. In Hebrews 1, it says that to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? No, the angels are created beings, spiritual beings that do the work of God, that were to co-steward creation with, with us and humanity. Some fell and decided they wanted to do, you know, go against God, and that little unseen realm war is, battle is still going on. But angels are important, but they're not the star of the story. Jesus is. Mile marker number two is this. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. That's what Hebrews 3 is about. Now, it's important to listen to Moses. Because Moses was at this mile marker going, keep going, keep going. Jesus is that way. The law and and all that God spoke to Moses was pointing again to Jesus, pointing to him fulfilling all of the scriptures. Jesus said that over and over. I've come to fulfill all that was written about me in the law and the prophets, all that Moses had to say. The Jews, especially at the time of that Jesus walked the earth, they really got stuck at Moses. Stuck to the point at that mile marker where they couldn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Mile marker number three is Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system. He was greater than the temple. He was greater than all that was going on in the temple. All the sacrifices were symbolisms of what was going to happen ultimately through Jesus. And again, it's so important that when you read Hebrews and remember the date 70 AD, because these uh, Jewish Christians were going back to the temple to try to find their identity and and forgiveness rather than Jesus. That's the sin that they were, that they had got trapped into. So that's the book of Hebrews is all about faith, right? And having faith in what Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then mile marker number four is this. It culminates in the reality that Jesus ushered in a greater covenant. He is the greater covenant. 
As a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 8 of Hebrews, the writer quotes Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, the prophet, was prophesying about this new covenant that God was going to make with the house of Israel. And he word for word quotes Jeremiah, and then in the last verse he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Jesus is the greater covenant because all the covenants that God made with Adam and Eve, with Noah, Abraham, David, Moses, they were all pointing to the new covenant to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's good news. We don't have to wonder. <laughs> we don't have to wonder. In John chapter 1, the, the apostle John was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says this profound statement. No one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. Uh, Noah didn't see him. Moses didn't. David didn't. He says, but God the Son has revealed him or explained what the Father is like. And it's, people ask me all the time, well, well, what's God like? Well, God is like Jesus. God is like the human life that Jesus lived that we see in the Gospels. That's what the Father is like. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is my son. Listen to him. Those competing voices that are always trying to bring us down and um, evil propaganda, so to speak, and get us to doubt. Listen for the voice of Jesus. Jesus explained what his father was like and what the kingdom of God is like. And so I'll finish my point with this. When the Bible doesn't make sense, because how many know there's some things in the Bible that you go, what in the world is this? When the Bible doesn't make sense, look at Jesus. Let, the rab let our rabbi explain. How would he interpret things that went on in the Old Testament and so forth? And I would say this, more practical even. When life doesn't make sense, when life is chaotic, listen to Jesus. He will comfort you. He said, in this life, you're going to have trials and sorrows, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Turn it over to Dwayne. Guys, give it up for Dwayne. Thank you, church. Okay, so you follow who you listen to. My point is you go where you look. Uh, I was raised in... Southern California in the shadow in the foothills of the Sierra Madre Mountains. Um, these are the mountains that you might have seen uh, during the Rose Parade. Um, every New Year's Eve, they're on TV. They're the, the kind of the hills there. Anyways, I grew up riding my bicycle around these towns, and, and uh, there's a lot of really good hills. I was kind of a speed demon. So I, I got in the habit of taking my bike and going up as high as I wanted in the hills, and I'd come tearing down going just as fast as I could and uh, kind of get my speed fixed. So... One day I was coming down, and, and uh, it was a pretty quiet kind of bedroom community. There wasn't a whole lot of people in it. So I was riding down one day and, and uh, getting ready to turn right. And as I, as I kind of came up on the road going probably 40, 45 miles an hour, I, uh, I saw a car waiting to turn left. She wasn't really in my way. I was going to, you know, I'd gotten good at starting wide and cut real close and then swing out wide on the other side. And so I was going to miss her by a fair amount. It was a lady. Well, rather than going through the corner the way I should, I, I, I guess I kind of figured I should keep an eye on that, that fender of hers to make sure I didn't hit it. 
So as I kind of kept going around the corner, I kept watching that fender, and it kept getting closer. It was probably good I was watching it. Turns out I did not miss it. I hit her fender. I flew up over her car, over the sidewalk. I landed on the grass in my neighbor's yard. And I bounced back up. I, I was really bouncy when I was a teenager. Is anybody bouncy? Not that bouncy anymore. Uh, jumped up, and I ran over, and I apologized to her. I said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm okay. The bike's okay. And I grabbed my bike, which was mangled, and I kind of beat feet for home. Uh, I didn't want her to see I'd scratched up her car, so I took off. And uh, today is the 21st stage and final stage of the 2023 Tour de France. Uh, we learned a few weeks ago this is the biggest uh, sporting event in the world as far as viewership. Three and a half billion people will watch the uh, Tour de France at some point during its 21 days. And uh, there are eight billion people in the world. Anybody watching the, the bicycle race on TV? Anyone? This is going to go great. Um, <laughs> so let me explain a little bit about the Tour de France. This is the most grueling race in the world. Uh, as far as it goes, 21 stages, it's some thousand miles or something like that. And I want to give a couple of pictures of bicycle racing since I grew up as such an avid bike racer. Um, I'd like to kind of tell you a little bit about it. So you go where you look in a bike the same way that you do in anything else. There's a, there's a concept called target fixation. If you're an airplane pilot or if you've ridden a motorcycle, you might know about it. I didn't know about it. I, I just knew that I bounced off that lady's fender. But as I walked home and, and thought about it, the truth is, you go where you look. Combat fighters in World War, I think it was World War II, were, it was first identified, this, this target fixation idea of people fixating pilots, fixating so intently on what they were trying to destroy that they would ignore all the dangers and risks around them and simply go straight at that target. And that's, in effect, what I did. Same thing in motorcycles. You look at the wrong thing, and pretty soon you rode right into it. So that brings us to today's passage for me, and this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. So we're racing. I mean, the author of Hebrews could have used any language that he wanted to to describe what we like to call the human walk. But he called it a race. And so with that context, as Scott mentioned, all of a sudden, the therefore at the beginning of Hebrews 12 makes a little bit more sense. So let me go back here. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses, well, we're just coming out of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 has been called the, the, the roll call of the saints, the faith hall of fame. It's the, the champion's ledger of the book of Hebrews. It goes through, it talks about Enoch, it mentions Noah and Abraham and Sarah. And it kind of goes on and on and outlines all these people who ran the race and ran it successfully. And it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race before us. So I wanted to take this opportunity, as, as you think about the Christian walk as a race, I thought, well, how would we do that? So I want to explain a couple more pictures um, about bike racing. So uh, the first one is, is this, the Peloton. 
The Peloton is the big crowd of riders. We might have a picture of it. A big crowd of riders that are all going together. And there's actually a lot happening in the Peloton, but I thought we could we could kind of say a Peloton's a little bit like the church. So we do life together. We ride together. We spend time together. The church is a little bit like this Peloton and that we're riding down the road together doing this race of life one together, one, one another. So we do life together. And that, in this context, would be training. We disciple each other. We encourage each other. We hold each other up. The second thing is we race together, and that's just the actual work of being a Christian and, and, and running that Christian race. We do ministry together. We do our outreach. And like the Peloton, we go faster together than any of us could go separately. We have this, this combined momentum. The way the Peloton works in a nutshell is guys coming up on one side are coming faster, and the tired guys are kind of falling back, and so it's, it's just kind of caterpillaring down the road, moving faster and faster. So that's one thing. The next thing would be breakaways. So inside the Peloton, you're going to have one or more riders, and they want to get away and separate themselves from the field. They want to get out in front, and they're racing for something. They, they might be going for a jersey. There's a yellow jersey. There's a green jersey. There's a polka dot jersey. There, you get a jersey for being most competitive in the Peloton. They give all kinds of small rewards. So these breakaways exist as a way of somebody getting out and distinguishing distinguishing themselves or doing something uh, in the context of that race, doing something that will get their name in the record books. Well, in the context of church, we also have breakaways. You could probably make the argument that the Reformation was a breakaway. You could make the, the statement that starting a new church is a breakaway. But there's a couple of funny things about breakaways and the Peloton. Just going out on your own generally isn't very easy to succeed. I mean, the Peloton moves faster, and it's hard work to stay out there in front of the Peloton. So really, the success or failure of that breakaway in our context is in whether or not the Peloton or the church supports that breakaway. It's the same thing in bike racing. If the Peloton doesn't want those guys to go, it'll stop them. Well, in our context, we encourage and send out and equip others, ourselves and others, to go and do missions. So it's lonely to go out there, and it's hard to ride that fast without help. But there's a possible reward in our context. We might get the the label of good and faithful servant. So I want to close with kind of this point. Our race route is ordained by the Lord. If you look in Psalm 37, 23, it says, A man's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his ways. Jesus has run the race. In fact, he changed the race. All of these names we're looking at these guys were living a life of faith based on the promise of a Messiah and faith in God. And Jesus came around, and I want to back up and read Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40, real quick. All these were approved through their faith, talking about everybody in Hebrews 11, all the heroes of our faith. But they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. So the something better, that's Jesus. We don't have faith in God and the promise of a Messiah. We have faith in Jesus Christ who came and ran the race, successfully completed it, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We have a completely different, we have the source and perfecter of our faith, as it says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross. You know, endured the cross, despising its shame. Would there have been a more humiliating way to die than being crucified? 
if the Romans could have thought of one, I suspect they would have used it. I cannot imagine a worse way to die. You're essentially unclothed. You're hanging there. You can't, you know, kind of wipe your nose, wipe your tears. You can't do anything. You're just there humiliated and dying. And Jesus despised that shame. He kind of sat there on that cross and went, yeah, but this ain't me. That's our, that's our Messiah. That's who we follow. So we're the fortunate ones to have a faith based not only on God the Father and on the promise of a Messiah, but we have faith in Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed and focused on Jesus as the writer of Hebrews knew, fixate. I'll turn it back over to Scott. They never clap for me, bro. So. You might have seen me spill water on myself when I sat down. Glad I drew attention to that. That's good. So you follow whom you listen to. You go where you look. And then lastly, you become like what or who you worship. We are becoming like who we worship. We were created to worship. Every single person, whether they believe in God or not, were created to worship. And it's never a question of if we will worship, it's who or what are we going to worship. And there's a lot of, again, competitors for our worship and our allegiance. It could be a career, it could be looks, it could be relationship, it could be all kinds of things that are competing for us worshiping Jesus, worshiping the Father. Our lives, when they're centered and aligned with Jesus, and He has our allegiance, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're going to have a pain-free life. But it does mean our lives are aligned with our Creator, and this side of heaven, we're going to walk with Him. We're going to grow in Him. And so worship is so much more than just singing. That's definitely part of it, singing from your heart. But worship is obedience. Worship is love. Worship is caring for one another and serving for one another. Kind of crescendos in Hebrews 13 in, a, in sort of saying, in light of all that I've said in this, this letter to you Hebrew Christians, says this, through him then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips praising his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing with such sacrifices God is pleased. I love that. All this talk about sacrifice, the mind of, of those guys would have always gone to the temple, the animal sacrifices, the, the grain offerings. He's saying now in Jesus, there's a new sacrifice. And it's the, the praise of our lips to our, our heavenly father through Jesus and it's serving one another. It's sacrificing our time and our talents for the better of others. As we worship the Father, we become like the Father. You become like Him. I, I, this thought hit me as I was preparing this. I was thinking about physically how sons often emulate their fathers. And I thought of my good friend Joel Diebel here. You guys love Joel? You know him? Um, when we were, I've known Joel since he was in high school. And when we were on our, one of our second mission trips to the Dominican Republic, Joel brought 
his son Bryson. And Bryson's now big Bryson. He was smaller Bryson then. And I saw them like leaving our worship time and walking back to their hotel room together. Because Joel, he just kind of walks like, you know, he's a little stiff, you know. <laughs> and uh, Bryson was walking right next to him. And his little body was, was walking just like that. And then this last Christmas Eve, Joel's dad and Bryson's grandpa came to our Christmas Eve service. And I was following them out the hallway there. And all three of them were just walking like that. I cracked up and told Joel that. And he, he always laughs when I kind of do that. But it, that's physically, you take on the traits of your father in many ways. Well, when it comes to our spiritual lives and learning how to live life, we take on the traits of our heavenly father who's perfect, who loves unconditionally. He loves you and I deeply. You matter so much to the father that he gave his son so that we could have life and eternal life. And as you and I worship Jesus, we become like Jesus. You see the human life of Jesus. His life was all about others, others centered, serving, self-denial. And you and I are learning how to deny ourselves and move from being selfish to unselfish. That's the process that we're all undergoing that are following Jesus is learning how to live like him. And so sharing and serving are going to just be the byproduct of worshiping Jesus and becoming like him. So I think the challenge every day, every week is who or what is getting the best of my worship? Is, is my life aligned with Jesus? Is my allegiance to Jesus first and foremost? Because we don't want to just be believers. And of course, being a believer is important. We walk by faith. But we want to be followers of Jesus. Move from just being a believer to I follow Jesus, which means I put into practice what he says to do. I put into practice the kind of life that he says he's created for us. Will you stand with me? At the end of Hebrews 13, there's a benediction that the writer says. And I thought maybe together we could make this confession together about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It'll be up on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Can you put it up on the screen? There you go. All right, here we go. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is, Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, seal this work and this word in our hearts that we We'll listen to you, Jesus, that we want to keep our eyes on you, and we want to become like you, Lord. We thank you for it. Lord, I pray for every need that's represented in this room and online. 
God, folks are hurting physically. I pray for physical healing for those that, that need that. Would you release your grace of healing? God, those who have emotional struggles right now, God, release your healing. Holy Spirit, relational healing, God. Marriages, families, friendships that are uh, in crisis, Lord, I pray that you you, Lord, would heal what needs to be healed because you are our healer. And we corporately and individually say, Lord Jesus, we agree with you. You are the Lord of all. You are the Savior of all. Thank you for your perfect love. Let that perfect love drive out all of our fears and worries today. In Jesus' name, amen.